Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mouse, and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be yet another solved case for my Curious Case series. Before we delve into this case, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to the people over at Surfshark for teaming up with me to bring you this episode. Even with the world currently on lockdown, it doesn't mean your location has to be. With Surfshark, you can never run out of content to watch. Surfshark is a VPN service that allows you to easily change your location, which gives you access to a variety of Netflix libraries from different countries across the world. The show or film you want to watch not available in your country, simply switch your location. And you can do that on every device you own as Surfshark allows you to use one subscription on an unlimited amount of devices. You know just as well as I do that some of the things that we Google when researching cases can be considered a little bit strange. The beauty of Surfshark is that it hides your personal information and your searches from the governments, so you don't have to worry about one day finding yourself on the FBI watch list because you were researching Ted Bundy. I also use Surfshark to access news sources that have restricted access to just their country, meaning it allows me to research deeper by pretending to be in the case's location. And just for you, Surfshark have given us a discount code to get 85% off your subscription, along with an additional extra three months for free. Surfshark offers a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk if you're unsure about whether or not you need a VPN. So be sure to click the link at the top of my description or the link in the pinned comments, grab a subscription to Surfshark and stay protected and safe online. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Friday the 18th of September 2009, in the quiet town of Farmville, Virginia, was a Friday that would uncover a brutal and gruesome quadruple homicide that would shock everyone who lived there. Emma Keeley Niederbrock was born on Thursday the 15th of October 1992 in Champaign, Illinois, the United States, to parents Mark Allen Niederbrock and Deborah Sue Keeley. Emma's father Mark was actually a pastor at their local Presbyterian church, and her mother Deborah was a doctor. Pastor Mark had been the head of the local church for six years, and had been born on the 20th of March 1959 in Illinois. He graduated from the University of Illinois with a major in photography, before going on to work as a graphics designer. After considerable time working as a graphics designer, he decided to turn to the church and receive a Masters of Divinity. During his time as a graphics designer, he married Dr. Deborah Sue Keeley. Deborah had been born on the 28th of September 1955 in Richmond and had studied sociology and criminology at Longwood University. 
eventually becoming a professor of those subjects. After Mark and Deborah got married, they settled down in a nice family home in Farmville, Virginia, where they had their only child, Emma. Both her parents homeschooled Emma from the age of about 11 years old, and on all accounts, she had a fairly sheltered upbringing. Though, despite her sheltered upbringing, she always had a curiosity in the occult. Her research into the occult saw her stumble upon some very alternative genres of music, such as horrorcore. We'll take a look at what horrorcore is later on in this video, but it's a good indication of the alternative lifestyle that Emma was interested in. However, just because she had this interest in the alternative and the occult, it didn't mean she didn't enjoy popular music groups such as the Backstreet Boys or popular sports such as football or soccer for you Americans out there. At the age of 15, at the start of 2009, Emma's parents got divorced and separated. Dr. Deborah remained in the family home in Farmville, while Reverend Mark went to head the church in Pamplin. Emma's obsession with the genre of horrorcore began to intensify, and it actually began to disturb her mother to the point where her mother set up counselling sessions to ensure there was nothing untoward going on behind the scenes. Now, Emma wasn't alone in her obsession with the horrorcore genre. Her best friend, Melanie Wells, also loves that genre of music. Melanie was two years older than Emma, born on the 13th of February 1991 in Louisiana, before moving to West Virginia to study at the Musselman High School. It's unclear at what point exactly Emma and Melanie became friends, but what we do know is that their shared love for the alternative kicks their friendship off, and they were as close as can be. According to the official Wikipedia page, horrorcore is a subgenre of hip-hop music based on horror themes and often darkly transgressive lyrical content and imagery. Unlike most hardcore and gangster rap artists, horrorcore artists often push the violent contents and imagery in their lyrics beyond the realm of realistic urban violence, to the point where the violent lyrics become gruesome, ghoulish, unsettling, and slasher film-esque. Those who create horrorcore music focus primarily on topics such as death, psychosis, psychological horror, mental illness, satanism, self-harm, cannibalism, mutilation, necrophilia, suicide, murder, torture, rape, drug abuse, and often supernatural or occult themes. The genre has actually been linked to two school shootings, Columbine and Red Lake High School. It's quite a controversial genre, with some law enforcement officers believing that the horrorcore genre incites crime. Both Emma and her best friend Melanie had decided, when Emma was about 14 or 15, to go to a horrorcore festival near San Diego. Though Emma's mother was quite concerned for her safety if she were to attend at such a young age, so decided that they would all go together. The festival itself was fairly intense, but thankfully Emma, Melanie and Emma's mother stayed safe, and Emma and Melanie had a great time and experience. 
At this festival, Emma actually became friends with somebody who works at the record label who had her favourite artist on their roster. They linked up via the social media site MySpace and quickly became really close friends to one another. Emma and Melanie were actually asked to become members of the artist's online promotions team and they happily accepted. Also on this promotional team was a man called Richard McCroskey, who was a web developer with a passion for filming concerts and taking photographs for the artists. At some point, when Emma was just turning 15, Richard and Emma began to chat constantly online, and it wasn't long until they began e-dating. They would flood each other's MySpace profiles with messages of love and admiration for one another, despite never having met in person. As the months passed by, they constantly discussed the day when they would finally meet each other for the first time. And it wasn't long before the Horrorcore Festival in Detroit, Michigan appeared on their radar, and they decided that it was there that they would meet for the first time. But they wouldn't actually meet at the festival itself for the first time. They decided that Richard would come to Farmville and stay with Emma's family before leaving with Melanie to the festival. Melanie also came to Emma's house to stay during that time so that travel arrangements would be easier. On Sunday the 6th of September 2009, Richard arrived in Farmville and went straight to Emma's house to meet her. They immediately embraced one another and spent every second together. The festival itself wasn't due to begin for another six days, so they spent the time together getting to know one another and doing all those things that teenagers do at that age. When the concert came around on Saturday the 12th of September 2009, Emma, Richard, Melanie and both of Emma's parents travelled to Michigan to attend the event. And the event itself seemingly went off without a hitch, with all three teenagers enjoying the festival atmosphere. At least, that's what Emma's parents believed. Emma and Richard actually had an argument during the festival. What exactly they argued about, I'm unable to determine. But nonetheless, the group travelled back to Farmville the following day on the Sunday. Emma's father then returned to his own home, leaving Emma, Melanie, Richard and Dr. Deborah, Emma's mother, in the Farmville family home. Melanie posted on her MySpace blog to say that she was intending on returning to her hometown in West Virginia on the 16th, which was the following Wednesday. But when the 16th came around, Melanie didn't return to West Virginia she fell radio silent. Her mother, unable to get a hold of her, decided to phone Emma's father, Mark, on Thursday the 17th of September at around 5pm on his cell phone to see if he could drop by and check on Melanie to see if she's okay. She told Mark that Melanie hadn't been answering her cell phone and whenever she phones the landline, 
Richard would pick up and kept making excuses as to why Melanie couldn't come to the phone. And so Mark got in his car and drove to the Farmville home to check on the girls, arriving late in the evening on that Thursday the 17th of September. Melanie's mother waited patiently by the phone for Mark to phone her and tell her about the well-being of her daughter. And as the minutes turned into hours, she began to grow more and more concerned. She tried contacting Mark but was unable to get through to him, and by midnight her concern had grown to sheer panic. It was at midnight that she decided to phone for the police and ask them to go to the house for a welfare check. In the early hours of that Friday morning, police officers pulled into the driveway of the family home and knocked on the door. Stood on the other side was 20-year-old Richard McCroskey, and when the police officers asked him about the whereabouts of the girls, he told them that they had gone to the cinemas. Satisfied with this response, as the girls wouldn't have been able to answer the phone if they were at the cinema, the police officers left the property and reported what had been said back to Melanie's mother. Interestingly, about an hour after the police had initially come to the Farmville home, they received a second phone call at 12.58 a.m., but this time it was from Richard McCroskey. He asked them whether they could come and check out the basement, as he had kept on hearing noises coming from down there and he was scared it was a home invasion or a home intruder or something untoward. So the police got back in their car and drove to the house. Richard answered the front door and escorted them to the basement, where they began to conduct a quick search to ensure there was nothing there though they found nothing and ultimately they left the property. By the time late Friday morning came around, Melanie's mother had still not heard from her daughter or from Mark and sick to the stomach with worry, she decided to phone the police to conduct another welfare check. As with the last time, the police pulled up the driveway and walked up to the front door. Though this time, when they knocked on the front door, nobody answered. The police entered the house through the front door, although I'm unsure whether it was a forced entry or whether the front door had been left unlocked. What we do know is that the police officers, when they had come to the front door, had noted a very distinct, repulsive smell, which was similar to the smell of a decaying body. In the downstairs bedroom, the authorities discovered three brutally murdered bodies. A fourth body was also found in a room in the upstairs of the house. It was immediately clear that the occupants of the home had been attacked and killed. It was also immediately clear that one person known to be staying at that residence wasn't there. 20-year-old Richard McCroskey. In fact, a car that had previously been noted to be parked on the driveway of the house by police officers that visited the property in the 24 hours prior also wasn't there. But who exactly was Richard McCroskey? Richard Samuel Alden McCroskey III was born on the 23rd of December 1988 in Castro Valley, California. His early childhood was mostly uneventful, 
Though about five months before the events of this case, his parents separated and he remains living with his father. He wasn't particularly successful at school and had no plans of going on to university or really embarking on a conventional career path. His love for the genre of horrorcore developed around the age of 11 and he soon began producing his own music in the genre under the name of Psycho Sam. Some of his releases include titles such as Murderous Rage, Jesus Told Me To Do It, Burning Churches, My Dark Side, and The Voices. I'll spare you from having to listen to his music in this video, though if you for some reason are interested in listening to his songs, then they can easily be found on YouTube. The lyrics in his songs, and in particularly in the song Murderous Rage, are extremely eerie and horrifying considering his later actions. Richard was considered to be a loner by his peers at school and by his family. He never really had any friends and spent most of his time alone in his room listening to horrorcore. His father is of particular interest as he had been a rock guitarist who had raised both Richard and his sister through a heavy dose of metal bands such as Insane Clown Posse, Metallica and Primus. How exactly his music tastes morphed from these classic rock bands to horrorcore is unknown. Richard, as previously mentioned, spent the majority of his time in his bedroom composing and producing music on his computer. He also began to design web pages, which he became pretty good at. Richard also frequently posted on his MySpace page to promote his music. On Thursday the 17th of September, as Melanie's mother was desperately trying to get a hold of Melanie, Richard placed a phone call to his father's home. Now, nobody was actually there at the home, nobody picked up the phone, but he did leave them a message where he said that he hoped everyone was okay. He ended the message by saying, I love you guys, which according to his sister was extremely, extremely out of character. The McCroskey family had never been a lovey-dovey kind of family, and so Richard expressing his love for his family was of immediate concern to his sister when she heard the message. She knew that something was wrong. On the day the police discovered the quadruple homicide, between the hours of 8pm and 9pm that evening, a friend of Richard's phones the police to let them know about a phone call that they had had with Richard the day before. Richard called his friend in the afternoon of the Thursday and had told them that he had killed one or more people and he was clearly upset at his own actions. As a result of this phone call and due to the facts that Richard had gone missing, presumably stealing the car that had been parked on the driveway that had belonged to Emma's father Mark, Richard was identified as the prime suspect in this case. In the early hours of Saturday the 19th of September, the authorities sent over photographs of Richard to the nearest airport to ensure that if he tried to flee the state, he would be found and apprehended. Just a handful of hours after the police had sent out the photographs of Richard, at around 4.30am, a police officer actually ticketed a young man who had been driving without a license after he had driven his car into a ditch. A tow driver was called who assisted in pulling the car from the ditch and who also dropped Richard off at a nearby convenience store. Unbeknownst to the police officer and the tow driver, 
This young man was 20-year-old Richard McCroskey, fleeing from the scene of the crimes. The tow driver would later tell the courts that Richard had a very strong odour about him and it seemed as if he hadn't showered in a while. Richard had told this tow driver that the car he had crashed into the ditch actually belongs to his girlfriend's father and the tow driver jokes that his girlfriend was going to kill him when she found out. The police officer that had ticketed Richard had seen no reason to arrest him as he presented nothing that could have been deemed suspicious. The tow driver would also later tell the courts that Richard appeared to have bruising around his neck. After he had dropped Richard off at the convenience store, everyone went on their way as it was the early hours of the morning and people wanted to go home. The next sighting of Richard was at a restaurant in Farmville at around 6am that Saturday morning. He had ordered some breakfast and was sat alone, appearing to be somewhat despondent. It was during this breakfast that he developed a plan of escape. He would catch the next plane out of state. After finishing his breakfast, he called for a taxi and was picked up at around 8.20am to go to the nearby Richmond airport. On the journey, Richard spoke to the taxi driver about horrorcore music, the festival he had recently attended, and his girlfriend Emma. The taxi driver actually got pulled over by the police during this taxi journey for speeding and as the police ticketed the taxi driver, Richard had stepped out the car and smoked a cigarette. The taxi driver would later tell the courts that Richard seemed to be in good spirits and wasn't acting abnormally at all, besides a overwhelming horrible odour that he had about him. Now some sources state that Richard made a call to the authorities or somebody else important to this case during this period and confessed to the murders, but I was unable to confirm whether that's true or not or whether that's just media speculation or just a rumour, so I, but I, just, I still thought it was important to note in this video that uh, some sources did say that. Nonetheless, as he waited to board his plane at Richmond Airport at about 11.30am that morning, the police located Richard and arrested him. Richard had been sleeping at the terminal when the police found him and he willingly gave himself up to the authorities when they arrested him. They conducted a quick search of his body to ensure he had no weapons before taking him into custody. He was transported to the Farmville police station to undergo questioning though he refused to cooperate with the investigators initially. Due to the overwhelming evidence against Richard, the um, friend telling the police that he had confessed to the murders uh, prior to him being named a suspect, to the facts that he had um, been seen at the crime scene and he had run away from it and stolen the car, he was indicted with six counts of capital murder. And this was actually due to the facts that the police had drawn links between Richard and two other homicide cases that had similarities to this case and that had both occurred within the three years prior. When the investigators asked Richard what his motives were for the murders, despite not cooperating with the police, he told them that Jesus told me to do it. During his questioning, his home back in California was searched and several items were seized and entered into evidence, including his personal computer, the house phones where he had left the voicemail, and other minor pieces of evidence such as notebooks. Eventually, Richard caved and confessed to 
everything in vivid detail. He told the authorities that he had murdered Melanie, Dr. Deborah, and Emma the day after they had gotten back from the festival on the 15th of September 2009 at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Before committing the violent murders, he had ingested marijuana and alcohol. He then took a hammer and a maul and first attacked Melanie, who had been sleeping soundly on a couch in the den of the house, which was downstairs. He then went upstairs and attacked Dr. Deborah, who, like Melanie, had been asleep in her office upstairs. After murdering Emma's mother, Dr. Deborah, Richard went into Emma's bedroom and attacked her also while she slept. Each of the bodies had been bludgeoned beyond recognition, with the authorities having to later use dental records to positively identify the remains. Richard then stayed in the home for about three days before Emma's father Mark came to the house on the request of Melanie's mother. Richard attacked Mark from behind using the same weapons he had used on Mark's family and Melanie. Mark was instantly rendered unconscious as the vicious attack continued, and as with his family and with Melanie, he was bludgeoned beyond recognition. At some points, Richard had decided to move the bodies from where he had murdered them to the downstairs bedroom, though he left Emma's body in her bedroom upstairs. Autopsies conducted on the remains concluded that Emma, Melanie, and Dr. Deborah had stayed asleep during the attacks, as there are no defensive wounds which could coincide with conscious self-defense. After he had murdered Mark, Richard had started recording himself on a digital camera that was in the house. On this video, he told the camera that he knew deep down that he had to pay for what he had done. He also made several indications that he would try to end his own life before having to deal with the consequences of his actions. Due to the severity of his crimes and under Virginia criminal law, Richard was facing the death penalty for the quadruple homicides. Though in September of 2010, the prosecution offered him a plea deal. This plea deal would see him plead guilty to the four brutal murders in exchange for a life sentence. The plea deal was actually agreed upon and supported by the victim's family, who didn't wish for the case to go to trial and didn't wish to go through the horrific events that had happened to their loved ones. Subsequently, Richard pled guilty to two counts of capital murder and two counts of first degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The two other homicide charges brought against him were dropped. I believe that was due to a lack of evidence against him. Richard claims that he had conducted these brutal murders due to his relationship with Emma. He had developed a fantasy portrayal of his relationship with Emma over the year that they had been constantly in contact with one another online. And when he had met her in person and she didn't live up to his fantasy, he got angry. According to his attorney, Emma's family and best friend had only been murdered as they had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. As Richard was being taken from the courthouse following his sentencing, he smirked. It's clear to me that Richard showed no remorse for the horrifying and violent acts he had committed, and I, for one, I'm glad that he will remain behind bars until the day he dies. But what do you think of this case? Do you think that he should have received the death penalty, or do you think that life in prison without the possibility of parole was justice enough? 
let me know down in the comments below. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. This episode, as you can tell, is slightly shorter than my usual episode length in this series, but I believe that every case and every victim's story deserves to be heard, regardless of the case details and complexities. I'd just like to give a massive thank you to Surfshark for teaming up with me to bring you today's video. I've used Surfshark almost religiously over the past few months during my research, and I honestly feel so much better knowing that what I'm researching is completely private and hidden away from any of those government watch lists because God knows, as a true crime YouTuber, I Google search some very suspicious things sometimes when I'm reading about a case. Make sure you go give Surfshark your support and check out their service as they're helping me to bring you more episodes just like this one. You can find a link in the description box and in the pinned comments down below. Subscribe to this channel so you can see more true crime videos just like this one and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every time I post a brand new true crime episode. Be sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter too. My handle on both of those social media platforms is at It's Joshua Miles. I post scheduling updates, case updates, and other behind the scenes content over there, so be sure you're not missing out on that. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.